Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, February 12th, 2024, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and the fish we're talking about this week may as well be a sea dragon with its fangs and giant dorsal fin. We're talking about the lancet fish today. We have not just one, but two lancet fish enthusiasts today. Emily Contreras is with NOAA National Marine Fisheries Services Pacific Islands Fisheries Science Center in Honolulu. And Lauren Flynn is with our very own Alaska Maritime National Wildlife Refuge. Hello. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Okay, so there's at least two really interesting things about this fish and probably more, but one is the way they look. And the other is gastrointestinal, which we'll get into. But first, we'd love if you could just describe what this fish looks like. What's like your favorite feature about this fish? The fact that I usually like to start with regarding lancet fish and their looks is their scientific name, Alepisaurus ferox, is Greek for ferocious scaleless lizard, which makes a lot of sense when you look at this fish. So they really just look completely prehistoric. A lot of people don't know what they are, will never get their hands on one. And so I think, yeah, they really surprise a lot of people when you actually see what they look like. Yeah, I'd add they have um, a huge eye. So when you get to see them, I think that's really striking. It adds to a really quick identification of this being an ambush or predator, especially in combination with that tail. And those really menacing looking teeth. And then sometimes they have an iridescent sheen to them too, which can be really cool. Awesome. What kind of colors in that sheen? Is it like greens or purples or what does it look like? Yeah, the ones I've seen have had a little bit of green to them. These guys are pretty big, right? Talking about size and dimension is really funny with these fish because even though they're like super long, they can be up to two meters, they don't yield very much weight. They're really long, but really low mass. So they're kind of bizarre in that way. (laughs) If you're looking face on, are they pretty flattened, compressed laterally? Yeah, they definitely are. They have a very thin body. They're very rubbery and watery. They have a thin, elongate silver body uh, that tapers out to a widely forked tail used for burst speed. They have a really, really tall sail. Think of like a sailfish used for steady maneuvering. So correct me if I'm wrong. So they got that giant dorsal fin. Like you mentioned, it kind of looks like a sailfish dorsal fin. But then they also have a really little adipose fin too, don't they? You know, Katrina and I were talking the other day because we had a lot of salmonid fish on. We have done the bloater and lake trout this year so far. But it's interesting having these marine fish that have this adipose fin in with these freshwater fish, your catfishes, your trout and salmon. So it kind of shows where they are in the family tree of fishes. They're sort of in that mix. Something that you wouldn't necessarily expect. So I I just thought I'd bring that up because adipose fins are my favorite of the fins. (laughs) And it can easily go ignored on on this species with everything else going on. I didn't even notice the adipose fin. That's amazing. (laughs) So reproduction is definitely something that we talk a lot about on this show. And every once in a while we get a fish that is atypical in how it reproduces. Uh, Particularly, we've had some good ones that are hermaphrodites, but I don't think we've ever had one that's a simultaneous hermaphrodite. So tell us a little bit more about this and how does this fish reproduce? So we actually know very, very little about the reproductive biology. That's about all that we know is that 
they are synchronous hermaphrodites. Spawning hasn't been observed. There's no particular spawning period. There have only been a handful of larvae, I think, that have been observed for. So there's this huge gap in knowledge of in the life cycle of this fish. So lancerfish were discovered in 1833. So they're not, you know, an, an entirely new species to us. Uh, it's been a known fact that when people look inside of them, they they do find both male and female reproductive parts. And I think this is true with a lot of deep sea fish also. But like I said, the details of that are not clearly known. So Emily and I were talking ahead of this recording, just kind of along these lines. Not a lot is known about these fish, but we do know a lot about their diet. And diet can tell us a lot about where they're spending time. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what's so unique about how they digest their food. Yeah, so I'll start with um, compared to sampling in the epipelagic zone, you know, a little bit shallow. Sampling in the meso or bactypelagic zone below a thousand meters is difficult and expensive. And there are a few sources of consistent sampling from these zones. And lancetfish dissections help us observe community composition, trophic level interactions, um, and feeding patterns from these poorly sampled areas. And so lancetfish, along with other deep sea fish, digest their food in their intestines and their stomach essentially acts as a storage organ, uh, making prey identification relatively easy, quick, and cost-efficient compared to methods like genetic sequencing, which is used for a lot of other diet studies. And so, yeah, most of their prey are fish, cephalopods, and crustaceans. And we've recorded over 100 different prey families, which is a lot for pelagic predators. We've recorded from, you know, reef fish to oceanic fish to deep sea species. And so they have a really diverse diet, which makes them really fun to study. What are some of the coolest fish you found? In their stomachs? I would say the rarest fish, which makes it interesting, is a Hawaiian spike fish. They're found pretty deep. It was only really observed through submersibles. Um, I found one last year, and it is being used as a genetic voucher for that species. So it's the eighth oh. collected globally. It's the first one collected since the 1970s, and it's the smallest of its kind. You find a lot of rare fish between... The 60s and 80s, there were new fish species and cephalopod species that were discovered from lancetfish stomachs. What kind of octopus are you finding in there? Oh, lots. Our, the diversity of cephalopods in lancetfish stomachs is amazing. So we have 111 species in wow. this region. And 50 of them, about 45% of these species, are found inside the stomachs of lancetfish. So they're just like eating everything. Is there anything really bizarre you've ever found? In their stomach that you weren't expecting? <laughs> uh, yeah, a size seven men's Nike shoe was found inside <laughs> the stomach of a lancerfish, which was wow. just bizarre. I don't think that's ever been recorded in, in a fish. I know a boot has been found in the stomach of a shark, and I think a shoe has been found inside the stomach of an alligator, but nothing of this size has been found in a fish smaller than a shark or an alligator. And I did cool. want to clarify that they are generalists, but 70% of their prey items by wet weight come from seven prey families. And so okay. even though they do cover a broad range of habitat looking for prey, they can be specific about what kind of prey they're eating. A way to kind of help visualize this, there was a study in the Indian Ocean that looked at the diets of lancetfish and found that when crabs and stomatopods were most abundant in a particular area during a monsoon season, they were the top prey item of lancetfish. 
And then there is another area where prey was known to be scarce. And that is where the highest levels of cannibalism was reported. And so they can find these dense patches of aggregation and, and they will stick to that prey. Um, however, if there's nothing around, then I, I think that's when they take a more generalist approach to, to feeding and hunting. So I, I'm kind of curious, how long do they hold food in their stomach for? And then what is the advantage of storing food as opposed to just digesting it right away like most animals? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the deep sea, it's hard to find food. This is common in deep sea fish um, to kind of hold on to their prey. And so if you have kind of um, a backlog of food, then you can digest it as needed. It's, it's way more helpful than digesting it as soon as it enters your mouth. So it's like um, storing a snack. It's common for the stomachs of deep sea fish to function partly as a storage organ. And it can be seen as an adaptation that allows them to preserve prey until they can digest it as needed for their survival. Emily, I, I have a question. Um, when you brought up the Hawaiian spike fish being found in the stomach, is that the deepest dwelling prey item that's been noted so far in the Lancet fish? And then my other part of that question is I'm trying to understand, like, what can we inference from these diet items in terms of the species feeding behavior? So, like, if we're finding prey items from many different depths, can we inference that this fish travels different depths to feed? Good question. That Yeah, that is a great question. It is not the deepest dwelling prey item that we have found. Lancet fish can be found, you know, 3,000 meters below the ocean surface. But we have discovered looking at the median depths of their common prey items that they generally forage within the upper 1,000 meters of their water column. And so they have the ability to resource partition with other fish. And so they can change their diet based on what's available, what's going to help them not have to compete with other fish for resources. So they can adjust to what is around and what's available. And it's neat that we can infer all of this stuff about their behavior just based on what we're seeing in their stomachs. Because like you said, it's really hard to study these fish, which is really neat. Yeah, we are a really unique place, I think, to study fisheries and being in the middle of the Pacific next to a Marine National Monument, the EEZ, um, including more than over a million square nautical miles of ocean, including a lot of fish. It's a really fun place to work. And we get to see a lot of neat things that, that other people normally wouldn't get to see. Along everybody, it's time for a minute with Maria. I'm Maria calling in from Chubb Young Lands in Dillingham. I wanted to give a big, huge kagasikum to our guests who are talking to us today on behalf of the wonderful Lancet fish. And also thank big thank you to the observers on the ships that are doing the work to get these stomachs in so we can take observations and note the data in the big food web of the ocean that these Lancet fish occupy. I wanted to kind of pay attention to how more and more petrochemicals keep showing up into the bellies of these lancet fish and other different species of fish in the ocean and also in rivers and streams, all of our water ecosystems, and how we should really start to think globally about this issue and start acting locally. So 
if that means starting small with just yourself and reducing, reusing, and recycling, um, if you want to go bigger than that, I encourage you to start planning community cleanups and make uh, systems to engage and incentivize people to start really thinking about our ecosystems and cleaning it up for the safety of not only ourselves, but the fish that live here and the birds as well. And um, yeah, let's, let's start doing the work that it takes to clean up this earth because we only get one earth. So thank you to our guests and respect these lovely fish. And I can't wait to hear more about this awesome lancet fish. Sounds so cool. I wish I could see one in person. Lauren, I'm interested. I mean, you work at the Alaska Maritime National Wildlife Refuge. How are you coming across these fish there? Yeah, so this is so cool. I'm really happy I get to be on this interview with someone like Emily that's encountered them in in a more formal way because how I first met the Lancet fish was actually I was walking a beach on a transect looking for rat sign on some satellite islands surrounding Great Sitkin Island out in the western Aleutians. And so if you can imagine the scene, I've been spending hours walking beaches looking down, searching for tiny little rat prints in the sand and little pellets and rat latrines along (laughs) the edges of the beach. And to get to another beach, we were walking in kind of like a shelf intertidal zone would be the best way to describe it, like volcanic looking shelf. And rats sometimes use that area too. So I was having to look extra hard trying to find some pellets like brown on black, brown on brown. And I'm really focused and really finely attuned to the ground basically. And then all of a sudden there's this like big, creepy eye, huge piece of white silver flesh like at my feet. And it's just like really disturbing and really jarring. There's those big, huge two fangs in front. It was like super mangled, like twisted piece of flesh. That gorgeous, huge sail dorsal fin was torn and tattered and hardly present. There was just kind of the fin raised there. And it was just like shocking and confusing because this to me looks like a deep sea fish. And so I was really confused what it was doing in such a shallow, fouled up area. And yeah, just so many questions, so few answers. Um, And once I got back to our ship, the Tekla, we have a copy of the Fishes of Alaska. And so immediately flipped it. That was my evening task was trying to identify what the heck we found out there. And it turns out that many other refuge biologists before me have been finding these fish washed up on beaches in the Western Aleutians. And it's super common. Yeah. Do you want to give any kind of plug for where you work? I work for the Alaska Maritime National Wildlife Refuge. It's probably the coolest wildlife refuge you've never seen. It's comprised of 2,400 islands and islets throughout the Alaskan coastline, and that includes many of the Aleutian Islands. Two-thirds of this refuge are a designated wilderness, and the refuge was established to conserve and protect marine birds, marine mammals, the marine resources upon which they rely, migratory birds. And it was also established for having a 
program of international research. So that's something really cool that sets this refuge apart is there's really amazing research and monitoring happening out here to help us learn about how islands and oceans interact with each other, particularly through these species that that connect the terrestrial and the marine. Yeah, I think your slogan, the thousands of islands, millions of seabirds, and it's yeah. like that bird focus, but all these birds are connected to fish. And we're going to be talking about capelin and some other species coming mm-hmm. up that benefit a lot of the birds that people care about as well. So we're looking forward to that. Yeah, 40 million seabirds come to nest on this refuge every summer. And so that's a testament to the vast resources that wash and surround these refuge islands. It's a special place. And then, yeah, we also get to encounter cool species like the long-nosed lancetfish. Um, I like this commonality between yeah. Alaska and Hawaii and the islands and this fish. Yeah, the, really, the volcanoes. Really and one yeah. question I had, because I know Fishes of Alaska, it's an older book. And in it, it describes the lancetfish here that we have in Alaska as long-nosed lancetfish. Yeah, from my knowledge, they are distinct, you know, kind of like with mahi, right? There are two different species, but they are generally considered to be the same fish when they're collected by fishermen. They have obvious differences to people that know that there are two species, um, but the short nose is found um, in colder waters in the Atlantic and the long nose lancetfish is found super commonly here in the Pacific. So Lauren's finding this fish on the beaches of the far-flung Alaska Maritime Mm -hmm. Refuge. Emily, where are folks finding them in Hawaii? How are you getting access to these stomach samples? Yeah, we are getting access to them by the lovely observers um, aboard longline fleets. So they are the number one bycatch um, on the tuna longlines. They're often caught more than tuna themselves. They're um, found very frequently. They're considered as pests, you know, to fishermen because they catch their valuable prey. That's meant for tuna, swordfish, you know, other more valuable fish. But these observers collect stomachs for us. And so this is a pretty cost-efficient project. It covers a span of 10 million square kilometers in the central North Pacific, which is a huge footprint. This could not be possible without the observers. Mm. We've collected, yeah, we've collected over 4,000 stomachs since we started the project wow. in 2014. Oh my gosh. So we deliver kits to the observers, bags with instructions and collection bags. And they collect the stomachs for us on the ships when the landfish come up, usually dead or dying. They take the stomachs for us. They bring the stomachs back to us with catch information, you know, location of catch, size of fish. And then we dig into the stomachs here at our facility and identify prey, count and weigh prey. I'm curious. So you mentioned that sometimes new species have been found in these stomachs. Sometimes you get ones that have been discovered, but you can get a new genetic voucher from it, like the spike fish. But otherwise, why is this information valuable to NOAA? Why do you want to know what's in the stomachs of these 4,000 and counting lancet fish? Why is this information useful to the scientific community more broadly? For one, um, you know, it's hard to find, but prey that has been swallowed by another fish that's in great condition that could be um, a voucher, a genetic voucher. We were able to build a reference collection of intact prey that we are interested in. So mentioning the big diversity of cephalopods that we have. So it's hard to find this diversity of squids just using a net, using a trawl. These are 
micronectal that are able to swim away, that are able to avoid being captured. And so lancefish act as this giant net that captures these fast-swimming prey for us. And so filling the gaps helps the rest of the scientific community with other projects. For example, some cetacean studies use environmental DNA to identify the prey of cetaceans, which consists of a lot of different types of squids. Um, so we should be thanking be. these lancet fish because they are excellent samplers trying to help you all figure out these food webs. Yes, they are great. They are extremely bi- useful biological samplers to monitor these ecosystems. These midwater eco- ecosystems that I mentioned are difficult and costly to study, and we can observe how these communities might change over time. This storing in the stomach and not digesting it is kind of common among deep sea fishes. Why are lancet fish in particular used for this kind of work? Oh, they are super abundant. I mean, they're the number one bycatch. And so they are very easily accessible and they are large. They can grow to be over six feet long. And so that and their diverse diet makes them great samplers. So I'm thinking of these kind of Russian nesting dolls. If these guys are eating other deep sea fishes, are you finding their stomachs useful as well? Like you're getting a full kind of even bigger picture of the food web? Yeah. So we actually just completed a study last year looking at prey of prey, kind of the Russian doll effect. We looked at three of their common prey items, which are the Anoplogaster cornuta, also known as a fang tooth. Okay. Those are really neat fish. They are commonly found around 2,000 meters. They only grow to be about six inches long. But as adults, they have the largest teeth in the ocean compared to their body. Oh, so, um, they're, they're really that's amazing. Cool. Yeah. Okay. And the other fish is the Omosuidus loi, which is called a hammer jaw, and they also have large teeth. They are commonly found in the upper 1,000 meters, and the largest record is 10 inches. None of these fish are super large, but they are two of the most common prey in the strand of lance fish, and juvenile lance fish themselves are all cannibalistic. And so, we looked at these three prey items. These are three common but poorly known deep sea fish. Like I said, they're able to avoid collection with trawls. A lot of these micronecton can easily swim away from our nets. And so very little is known about their diets. And the diets of larger Atlantic fish have been studied, but you know, smaller juveniles are poorly understood. Omosuidus, Anoplogaster, and Elephisaurus are similarly sized. They have overlapping habitats, and they likely forage on the same prey communities in the Central North Pacific. And so we wanted to explore how those resources are shared among these three predators. And what we found was, based on their diets and using the median depths of their prey, Omosuidus, the hammerjaw, foraged the deepest, and that was driven by its consumption of hatchet fish, which mm. are not migratory. And so they hang out at a depth of around 675 meters. Anoplogaster, the fang tooth, on the other hand, had the most shallow foraging depth in the upper 215 meters, and that's driven by their consumption of amphipods. So they love crustaceans. You know, Omosuidus mm. love bigger fish. And juvenile fish, being generalists, they feed in both the shallow and deep habitats and more broadly throughout the water column. Mm. Very cool. Yes. Go ahead, I, So, okay. What is up with all these toothy fish having like perfect specimens in their stomachs? Are all these fangs and teeth and hammered jaws, everything, are they all there just for that initial snatching of it? And then they 
gobble it or swallow it or what happens? These teeth are thin, right? They're not very dense and they're not necessarily used for chewing. I would think of them more like cages or to subdue prey with kind of one bite, with kind of just Horrifying. one closure, right? And so we usually find fish face forward. You know, they they try to maneuver and, and eat the fish oh. face first. Interestingly, we find a lot of fish consumed face forward. I do find prey items with like punctured holes on their backs or on their tails. I mean, some fish can turn fish around in their mouths. I think we've talked about that with like northern pike in particular. I do think it's a pretty common trait. I mean, you think about just for being practical, you know, the scales and the spines, everything folds backwards, everything. If you felt a fish, you don't want to it really is rough way. rubbing it one way and then you rub it the other way and it's fine. I know lots of fish will spin them around. I had no idea that they did that. That's amazing. I love that visual of like the teeth as a cage because it's such a striking feature with these fish that the, the teeth are like long and they stick out of the mouth and they, they just seem so oversized and Overkill. cartoonish. And your description of them as a cage all of a sudden like paints the teeth in a whole different way for me. <laughs> they remind me a lot of one of my favorite freshwater fishes, the payara, which is down in the Amazon, which they have these two fang-like teeth that they use to puncture swim bladders actually, but oh. they can close their mouth because they have corresponding holes in the upper jaw. Mm. So oh. it's like a sheath for their teeth. Is there something similar for the teeth on these fish or can they just not really close their mouths all that well? Yeah, that's a great question. Not that I'm aware of for lancerfish, but for the fang tooth, they do have specialized pockets in the roof of their mouth that allows them to somewhat close their mouth. I don't think they can completely shut their mouth, but they do have specialized pockets that allow their bottom teeth to kind of you know, uh-huh. rest up into their head. So one, one thing that's interesting that I was reading about this fish is that it doesn't have a swim bladder. And perhaps that's not surprising given the other species that's related to your green eyes, your lizard fishes, stuff like that. But it is a pelagic fish. It seems like it moves around a decent bit in the water column. You expect fish that do that to have a swim bladder. So can you talk a little bit more about some adaptations it has to this pelagic lifestyle with, without this buoyancy device? And then maybe talk about how it relates to its feeding ecology? I'm shocked. You just dropped like a total bomb on me right now. I had no idea this species didn't have a swim bladder. So I'm I'm shook. I need a minute. <laughs> I think that, that's correct, right? Or in addition, am I wrong? In addition to that, like I'm just curious how they're moving given their like long, skinny, rubbery, watery body as well. Please. I'm okay. dying over here. <laughs> yeah. They have been observed using submersibles to be kind of floating in the water column. They float head up, body down, and then they kind of use their sails and their fins to just wade in the water. They're ambush predators, and so they sit and wait to catch their food. They use their big eye to, you know, spot prey. Once they locate their prey, they go for it. Their white muscles are not built for durability. They're mostly used for short bursts of speed. And so I think not having a swim bladder helps them forage in a food-poor environment and it helps them navigate through the depths. And they they can be seen really deep in the ocean. Um, however, they can also forage on shallow reef fish. And so I think this adaptation of, of, of 
a bit of diverse diet um, is is an adaptation that they have, you know. Yeah, good for them. They're able to access all different areas. That's cool. Are you finding any plastic in these fish? And then it's kind of a similar question to Lauren. I'm curious how much plastic you're finding on the shores of these beaches that you've been walking in the refuge. Yeah, we find plastic in about 10% of stomachs. And that number gets a little bit bigger the closer you get to the Eastern Pacific Garbage Patch. Other studies have reported upwards of, I think, 20% um, of stomachs containing plastic, but the average for our area, not super close to the garbage patch, is 10%. Uh, On the refuge, marine debris and plastic debris is super common. I mean, you're going to find it on every single island, and then depending on tides and current, certain sides of an island might collect more debris than others. Because the Aleutians are part of the Great Northern Shipping Circle, and because those are such ferocious seas, um, another phenomenon that's pretty common up there is to find what was obviously like the lost contents of a spilled shipping container. Mm -hmm. So last summer, we were finding like crocs. We literally were finding like tons and tons of black crocs. And at one point on one beach, I found a baby croc and a mom croc and a dad croc. And then actually that same summer, I saw my first lancet fish. That was in 2021. So there's still pandemic stuff going on. And that summer on every beach in the Western Aleutians, we were finding the like tubes we were using for our spit samples for testing for COVID. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, they were everywhere. From, from a diet standpoint, it seems like plastic has just become a part of the food chain in a lot of different ways with birds and with fish and others. Mm-hmm. Overall, I'm going to give marine pollution a generally negative review, but... <laughs> Good. <laughs> I will say it is kind of cool. You know, historically, when they're still trying to, you know, we, we know a lot about ocean currents nowadays. But one of the ways that we learned about them was you mentioned things falling off of these large cargo ships and people could know where they fell off. And then people on beaches would find that material. And that's one way that we learned a lot about how currents worked in the oceans and how things traveled by where people found stuff and connecting it to where it fell off. Uh, I know that some fish do use the plastic guy also in the ocean to kind of um, use it as structure. So they've found like whole little ecosystems, even of like non-native fishes, like kind of following this plastic around. Is the plastic that you're finding in the bellies of these lancet fish, is it more towards the macro plastic or the micro plastic? They're pretty large pieces of plastic. Bottle caps are very common. We usually find shards about a couple inches wide. Polyethylene, polypropylene pieces of shards, lots of rope and twine, which I assume Mm. come from fishing nets. But yeah, going back to your previous comment about plastics, I am curious to see when we start finding masks or gloves um, inside the stomachs of lancet fish. And so that could help tell us the pandemic started in 2020. How long would it take for that plastic to reach the deep sea? Mm. Mm. Whoa, interesting. That makes me wonder, for lancet fish, because they're generalists and because it sounds like to some degree, it is changing its feeding depths. What does it qualify as when you describe it 
as a species, like, is it correct to call it a deep sea species or is it a mesopelagic species? What bin do we put it in, given that it's all over the place? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it is a synchronous hermaphrodite. It stores its prey in its stomach for a long time. I think given those features, it is considered a deep sea fish. So why should people care about this fish? People should care about lancerfish. They're extremely useful biological samplers. Sampling is cost-efficient and it covers a really, really large spatial scale in the North Pacific. They produce really high-quality samples. They feed broadly within the forage community and they generate samples, including the poorly studied taxa that we don't know a lot about. They themselves are prey items to tuna, swordfish, fur seals, salmon sharks, a lot of things. And so they really are a key part of the ecosystem and not a lot of people know about them. And so I think it's important to continue studying them. Yeah, it's so rare for any of us to get to encounter and see a deep sea fish ever in in our lives. So yeah, I think it's a really cool treat that these fish are so abundant that we get to encounter them on beaches and that, yeah, we get to be visited by this fish and get to encounter it in person. And that I think that's something really special and cool. I was watching, there's this local news segment out of La Jolla from a couple of years ago where a lancet fish washed up on the shore. <laughs> they filmed it at night for some reason too. <laughs> so there's like this marine biologist who's out there at night talking. <laughs> and then they're just showing random passersby like, look at this weird fish. They're like, oh, that is a weird fish. <laughs> it's like a monster. It's, <laughs> local news can be so funny sometimes. And that, that's a good one worth checking good out. Good for them. That's awesome. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I think I think that's so Hopefully, I think that's what people should do when they find lancet fish. Take pictures here <laughs> with everybody. I think that will really spark that interest in wanting to study the deep sea. I'm booking yeah. my trip to Alaska Maritime National Wildlife Refuge to yeah. go beach coming pretty soon here. <laughs> now you can go up there. I'm going to go out to Honolulu. That sounds like Yeah, that's too. That too. We'll, we'll have both of them. Hey, seabirds are nice, but I'm more of a warm weather guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both very much. This was super fascinating. I love learning about this fish. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, we'll get out there and live with, live from, discover and enjoy all the fish, especially the lancet fish. And thank you to the lancet fish for being such great samplers of the food web. And we appreciate your stomach donations very much. (laughs) I want to leave you guys with one funny fact that I read in the book Fishes of Alaska which was that when the first drawing of this fish was published in like the 1700s, it was called a jellyfish because of how funky, I guess, it looked. Huh. Like calling the fish a jellyfish or did they misidentify it as like a type of, you know, like the invertebrate? I don't, like the I don't think Nidarians. it was misidentified as invertebrate. I think it was like... Just the texture. The okay. Latinist fish, but then they, they just called it jelly. Okay, uh, that's forgivable. It. I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then these scientists in the 60s that were describing the species um, said that it has a sweet and excellent taste in spite of its horrible texture. So if you end up ah. getting any questions about eating, I'm not going to try any. I've tried anything, so. <laughs> I wonder if you dried it. That could mm. change the texture and maybe it would still retain the taste. I don't know. <laughs> Jerky.